you know, on public land and available for people to, to watch them and hopefully someday, maybe not too long, be able to hunt them. You said you are biased to, towards Montana, but uh, even as an outsider looking in, um, I mean, yeah, Montana is kind of that pinnacle. It's where you, everybody, every Western hunter, well, every hunter would love to go hunt bighorn sheep. You know, they, they, a, lot of, a lot of these folks have just been hungry for us to, to find an opportunity like this. You know, they've been waiting, you know, like 17 or I guess now 18 years. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host again for this episode, Taryn Hunt. Uh, I've got a great podcast for you guys today. Before we get to the podcast, though, I want to send a shout-out to our sponsors, Vortex Optics. Um, if you haven't checked out their stuff, go on to vortexoptics.com. Check them out. They have a lot of new information. I've mentioned this on other podcasts, but they released a whole lot of new products um, early part of January this year. And actually, be on the lookout. They've got a lot of really cool stuff coming out uh, the rest of the year. I know for a lot of the Western hunters, and really hunters in general, a lot of the stuff would be very useful. On today's podcast, I have Jay Colby of the Montana Fish and Wildlife, Fish Parks and Wildlife. Uh, he's an area wildlife biologist, and we talk about a bighorn introduction that they did up there in a new area. Now we've done a podcast about bighorn introductions in the past in different areas, and it gets everybody excited. You know, bighorn sheep is one of the one of those animals that really we all look forward to hunting at some point in our lives. And um, having more opportunities, more chances, uh, very cool opportunity for us, and a, a cool thing that they're doing there in Montana. So Jay shares that story with us. I hope you guys enjoy it. If you do, please uh, like the podcast, share it around, and make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever podcast platform that you use. All right, guys. Hope you enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the eHunter Newscast. Um, doing a newscast uh, this time um, on a kind of a similar subject that we've done in the past. Um, if you guys remember, recently we did a, a podcast about a bighorn release in, on Antelope Island in Utah. Um, I know that everybody loved that that podcast. We got a lot of feedback from it. Um, of course, everybody loves bighorns. Um, so kind of on that similar note, today's podcast is also about bighorns and, and in a new introduction, um, but this one is in Montana. And on the podcast with me today, I have Jay Colby. Uh, Jay is a, an area wildlife biologist for the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks there in Montana. Jay, how you doing today, man? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm excited to have you. Like I said, that Bighorns are a big topic. People loved that podcast that we did um, about the introduction in Utah, and um, people love hunting in Montana. And so the thought of you know, big more bighorns in Montana, um, just just a cool opportunity. So I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about this podcast. But um, as always, before we jump into the nitty gritty and the details of the introduction and things like that, um, Jay, would you mind taking a, a couple minutes and tell us a little bit about you, um, what you do there, um, kind of a little bit of your background? You bet. Yep. I've uh, been a wildlife uh, researcher and manager here in Montana for about 25 years. Um, I'm currently based in the uh, little town of White Sulphur Springs in central Montana, uh, kind of between Lewistown and Helena, and have responsibility for recommending management for uh, nine hunting districts in central Montana and the Little Belts, Big Belts, and Castle Mountains. Um, right now, just the general responsibility for game and non-game management for the state. Gotcha. Very cool. Boy, so you've been a you've been a biologist for quite a while then. 
Yeah, surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's amazing how uh, time flies when you're having fun, isn't it? <laughs> it does, and it is fun. I, I well, you and I talked the other day, and I told you. I mean, you were talking about uh, doing flying for and counting elk, and I told you. You know, I was a little jealous. You guys, you guys have a lot more fun in your job than I do in my day job. I'm, I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> there, there are some days, but yeah, you know, we're, we're really fortunate to be able to do what we do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump into it and, and, and talk about this. Um, you were sending me pictures and videos, and I, I watched those, those videos and looked at those pictures for like a couple hours last night. I was showing my, my kids; they were just dying at the, you know, of, of how you guys do this introduction of, of big horns in a new area and just just a cool thing in fact i think i, I got one of my boys uh wanted to become a wildlife biologist when he gets older because he thought that was the coolest thing seeing you guys fly these these big horns in on uh with helicopters but so let, let, let's talk about this and kind of get into the details in it so kind of take us back to the start like where did this idea come from what, what made you guys think about doing this introduction well if you really want to go back to the start yeah. um Bighorn were were common throughout the state of Montana uh, in the late 1870s, 1880s. Um, uh, areas including the Big Belts had large numbers of wild sheep, and then with the influx of domestic bands, unregulated hunting, um, some habitat degradation, we saw a pretty dramatic decline statewide to where in Montana uh, sheep you know by turn of the century early early 1900s the sheep range in the state was restricted to just a handful of very small bands Um, and the department has been actively working to restore sheep for over 100 years so in some ways this project is just a continuation of that that conservation and restoration legacy that the department is has really made a, a commitment to um, for its entire existence. Um, when you um, when you look at recent history, um, the, we've really sort of been challenged to identify uh, additional uh, sites that are appropriate for new bighorn sheep herds in the state. In fact, it's been almost 20 years since the department has even attempted to establish. Uh, new bighorn sheep herd in the state. Um, we've done some augmentations, done some other projects, but really it's been a long time since we've uh, really tried to establish a self-sustaining and huntable bighorn sheep herd in uh, historic habitat in Montana. Um, going back to 2010, uh, the state, the department drafted what we call the Montana Bighorn Sheep Conservation Strategy is basically our management plan for bighorn sheep in the state. And in that plan, uh, we both um, committed to attempting to establish five new self-sustaining herds in the next 10 years. That would have been by last year. Um, And we also identified the little belts um, in particular as really high quality but unoccupied bighorn sheep habitat now we failed to fulfill that first commitment um, not having established a new herd there's reasons for that we could talk about bighorn sheep management is is complicated yeah socially and biologically but uh 
you know, our commission continues to ask us to explore um, these kinds of restoration opportunities. And I've been working on uh, that project for many years since. And finally this year, the, the data and the public support and the funding and the source, which is another important part of that, all kind of came together to allow us to, to proceed um, with this project. And uh, so on December 17th, we did it. Oh, man, that, that is awesome. I, I got a couple of questions that kind of come came up as you were talking about that. Um, well, you talked about the little belts and that it was like it was prime good habitat for you know good location mm. for um, for bighorns. And, and as a wildlife biologist, what do you guys? Uh, you got to remember, I'm just a hunter. I, I I don't look <laughs> at the landscape the same way you guys do. So what what are you guys looking at? Like what what about that area that you like? Oh yeah, this is a good place for for bighorns. Yeah, you can start with the the history and the anecdotal information and there's real value in that that that's not to be discounted and um are you familiar with the writer and painter charlie russell western yes yeah um, i am artist yeah it's a real famous in this part of the country they mm-hmm. call this charlie russell country the central montana area he is a young man when he first moved west um stayed at a cabin in the south fork of the judith river in the little belts which is where we ultimately did the uh, release last month and in his journals he uh, wrote about the abundant wild sheep present in and around the area where he stayed those two winters so we, we have some historic you know records and interestingly we actually have prehistoric records so right at the release site and some of the some of the cliffy limestone outcrops uh, where we release the sheep there's actually big horn sheep pictographs native american uh, rock art, red ochre um, pictures of bighorn rams, literally at the release site. So we know <laughs> it was historically, um, you know, occupied and, and arguably high quality habitat um, before those factors we talked about earlier uh, caused their, their decline. Mm-hmm. So you start there, and then um, recently we've been able to to use all that we've learned about bighorn sheep in Montana. Uh, we've had a lot of radio colors out and done a lot of research projects and funded a lot of research into bighorn sheep habitat use. And uh, we've pulled together a couple predictive habitat models um, that describe a series of habitat variables that are clearly important to bighorn sheep. And we're able to overlay those predictive models um, on landscapes like the little belts to kind of confirm, Hey, does what we know sheep need, does that exist here in sufficient quantities? And is it arranged in ways that we think could again, support bighorn. And so we built, um, a relatively new one working with partners at the university that describes winter range, summer range, transition areas, that likely lead to that elevational migration and lambing habitat, those steep cliffy lambing areas that are also necessary to, to support sheep. And when you, when I pulled that model into the little belts, several areas within the range, and this range is about 1.2 million acres. It's not a small mountain range. It's an Island, but it's large. 
several areas within that mountain range really popped, you know, as, as having all of those habitat factors that, that you uh, require to support, you know, large numbers of sheep. Once you had those areas sort of highlighted, then you kind of move to the social um, factors that, that also need to come together to allow a transplant like this to happen. You need to talk to the land management agencies, in this case, the Forest Service owns 900,000 acres of the Little Bells. Um, they've been really, really supportive and had actually begun uh, habitat improvement projects in the name of bighorn sheep before the sheep even arrived so that that's really really proactive on their part um need to talk to the neighboring landowners um you know any release like this has the potential at least to be controversial and we'll want to make sure that everybody's involved we got very fortunate in the south fork to have uh landowners that were 100 percent in support of wild sheep and uh went so far as to allow us to release the sheep on their property. Um, so it's, it's, you know, to have that landowner support is crucial. And then we went and met with the, uh, um, the organization here in Montana, Montana Wool Growers Association that represents uh, domestic sheep producers um, to explain kind of what we were thinking and to get their concerns and, and hopefully, answer those concerns and we did that um, over the spring and summer and ultimately they encouraged us to put the project out for analysis and and did not oppose the project um, as it was proposed and that that you know the wild sheep and, and domestic sheep producers there have been places um, in Montana and other states where those two groups have been in conflict and in this case we're not um, we made some commitments on how we would monitor and, and manage these wild sheep and um, and committed to keep them entirely informed of how the project was going and and to check back periodically and so we've we've gathered that support so you have the history of sheep presence so you know the landscape historically did support them you have new pretty powerful habitat models that that tell us that the habitat is still there uh, you got agency partners, and you have landowner and producer support. The fifth or sixth—I forget what it, where, where my list is—the last piece of the puzzle is the, you know, moving sheep is expensive. Those helicopters yes. that your kids uh, were watching—you um, know, the the number of people it takes uh, in the field—and then the, we uh, deployed some really fancy um, satellite GPS collars on every one of the sheep that we moved and those are also very expensive and so we we uh, approached um, some private funding partners um, who stepped up to help us actually fund the project and also used you know this year and uh, the Montana like some other states uh, offers a single uh, governor's bighorn sheep license for auction and uh this year that tag brought over four hundred thousand um, dollars montana's wild sheep are are world renowned um the, the world record sheep comes from montana the area that we actually took the sheep 
from to do this reintroduction, those hunting districts are the hunting districts where these governor's tags are almost always used because of their trophy potential from that herd. Um, but that but that money from that auction tag um, endows an account that's specifically um, intended to fund bighorn sheep research and conservation work. And so we tapped, <clears throat> we were able to tap that fund to match some of the private monies that help support the project. So all those things came together in this case to allow us to, to get this off the ground. Wow, it's amazing what goes into making this whole thing possible. I mean, that is, that's amazing. Like you said, five, six, seven, I mean, there's probably a hundred different things that had to come sure, together, sure, but, but those sure. main, those big main ones to, to come together like that to make this perfect storm to, to allow this to well, happen. And if you, if you allow me to add eight and nine, yeah, uh, please. I guess I should, should have thought it, thought it through. But when you're, when you're talking about bighorn sheep, you can't really talk about sheep conservation uh, work, especially translocation work without also talking about disease. I mean, that is the primary, you know, um, consideration when you're either augmenting a herd or considering a source for a translocation or reintroduction like this, that, that disease history and, and susceptibility is, is critical to, to test for and understand. The um, source herd that I was talking about, the and again, I should back up for listeners not in Montana, the, the, the source that we used for this reintroduction is uh, located in the Missouri River Breaks um, in north central Montana. Uh, that herd turns out to be one of the most productive herds in the state, um, almost too productive. Uh, it's difficult for us to to maintain that herd at, at our objective level. And one of the things we've learned about bighorn sheep is that uh, one of the potential preconditions or precursors to a to a respiratory disease outbreak is is um, high herd density. So we, we strive to, to maintain herds around the state at our objective levels and not to allow the, the herd density to, to get beyond a point where it could potentially lead to a disease outbreak. This herd in the breaks, um, its engine is just running hot. I mean, the habitat's amazing. These sheep are just noticeably fat. <laughs> the pregnancy <laughs> rates are extremely high. They they lamb uh, almost a month earlier than other statewide herds. By every indication, they're the most biologically or demographically robust herds in the state. And it's difficult to uh, effectively control that growth with you hunting. Um, you know, some people urge us to do that. Uh, just by the way the sheep are distributed during the hunting season, that's not a practical solution. And so we have a, we have a, a source um, for excess sheep. The challenge is, is that that herd, it was established back in the 60s, um, but that herd carries, uh, when you look at PCR or, or serology for, for that herd, and we test it fairly regularly, it actually carries um, the pastorellas and the mycoplasma, ovinomonia um, bacteria that in other herds leads to respiratory disease and all age die-offs. They have that disease history. You can see it in the serology of the animals, some of the serology of the animals that we test. That herd has never actually had a respiratory disease um, event, even though it has evidence of past exposure to the 
to the bugs that generally are present when you do have a, a pneumonia event. We think that that's partly to do with the high quality habitat and the general good condition of the animals and the mycoplasma. You hear people shorten that to MOV, the folks that talk oh, sheep yeah. will use that shorthand. Uh, it, it occurs at a low, um, uh, low prevalence, but it's there. Because that sheep herd isn't clean um, necessarily, we can't use it to augment other existing herds. So you wouldn't want to take that risk of bringing in sheep that have some prevalence of these other respiratory bacteria and bring them into a herd to supplement an existing herd that's not either already exposed or recovering from a from a always die off. And so we haven't always been able to take advantage of the of the growth and the productivity of that Missouri River, River Breaks herd um, unless we could identify an area like the Little Belts where you're really just reintroducing a herd um, all at once. You don't have existing sheep that you could potentially contaminate. And, uh, you know, and that's all those reasons. That's partly why it's been almost 20 years since we've even attempted to establish a new herd. But the Little Belts being isolated, not being directly connected to other bighorn sheep herds, uh, being largely vacant, and uh, in um, a fair proximity to the breaks, um, just came out as an ideal uh, area to 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 take sheep from the breaks and to to use them as a as a founding um, herd in a new area. Yes. Sounds like the stars had to align for everything to work out perfectly like this. But I mean, even if it well, does take twenty years, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Um, so you said you got these. That was one of the questions I had was where you got them from, because um, I'm not super familiar with Montana. So I appreciate you sharing that information. And I and I, I don't know. A lot of our listeners, a lot of them are Colorado, Utah, so they may not be familiar with sure. that as well. So thank you for that information. Um, yep. How old? were these uh, these sheep that you took from the breaks? It was a range. So we, we weren't selected for ewes. Um, we didn't take lambs. Um, and lambs, by this point in the season, are independent. They're able to survive on their own, so we're not worried about orphaning. But we didn't take lambs, you know, sheep of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but adult ewes, we took what we could capture. Um, but we did age them by by horn annuli, so we had a range of ages from one and a half to ten and a half in our sample, which is really interesting to have that broad range. But yeah, that's, that's huge. That's, that's, you got to think that's good because you have some yeah. you have some you know mix of ages and hopefully long term productivity even of the original cohort. Uh, we suspect they were almost all pregnant when we captured them. Uh, given our history with that herd, the the birth rate is really high there, and uh, you know, well above ninety percent of those herds. There's not a senescence that uh, you might see in some other species, even with the older ewes. Um, and then we took, so we got forty five adult ewes, okay, and five uh, young rams, and you know. It would be, there's a couple of reasons to take the young ones. One, it's kind of social. If we 
grabbed a 190 class ram out of the brakes. <laughs> the, the fellow that had that tag this year and had been waiting yeah. his whole life or paid $400,000 for it would probably not be too happy. <laughs> but the, the, the younger rams um, tend to be more likely to, to associate with those U groups, you know, less apt to just take off, a um, little more dependent on those U's is the theory. And so bringing in those younger rams, we're fully capable of, of breeding yeah. um, come fall. Uh, we hope that they'd be more apt to, to stay, you know, in the release area than, than some of the older rams. So for, for two reasons, socially, you just have a bad look to grab trophy class huntable animals. Right. You know, in Montana, we require a ram to be three-quarter curl or better before it's even legal. And these are, you know, one to one to four-year-old rams are nowhere near that. Um, so we grabbed five of those and, um, and 45, uh, 45 ewes. And that was our, took us a day and a half to get all the captures done and the sheep processed and loaded up. But, uh, on the afternoon of day two, we were able to, able to actually do the release. That was so cool watching them too, running out of the trailer. I mean, it's like they knew exactly where they wanted to go and needed to go and just like a new home. Well, that's what they look like, but (laughs) it turned out they didn't. Um, Oh, really? What happened? it's really interesting, you know, these collars, I guess we can talk about those at yeah. some point, but the, the collars are, are very sophisticated and they, they collect a couple locations, GPS quality locations every day, transmit those locations through the Iridium satellite system and down to my computer. And so I can theoretically monitor these sheep's locations in real time. Wow. Um, Couple, couple times a day, you know, you don't always get a get a point for every animal every day, but it's it's pretty remarkable that we're able to monitor these sheep's movements in real time. Um, we were able to build in something called a geofence program that into a collar, so it's basically a polygon where when a sheep leaves or enters that polygon, my cell phone buzzes and tells me that sheep number 660 is leaving the polygon. That that gives me a prompt to go to the computer and, and look and, and check to see whether we've got a sheep that's really on the move potentially into an area where it could fall into conflict. Um, and that was one of the commitments we made to some of the domestic sheep producers that we try to keep as close an eye on, on the, you know, extra range movements of, of these sheep as, as technology would allow. And so we've got that geofence capability built in, which is pretty exciting. I'll receive remote mortality reports if a animal is stationary for eight hours or more. And luckily we haven't gotten um, any any more than one of those. And I can tell you what, what the deal is with that one. That was capture related. That's so they're pretty sophisticated collars. They're they're very, um, you know, they're they're data intensive and they're very expensive, which is why the partnerships we had with the Wild Sheep Foundation, Montana's chapter of Wild Sheep Foundation, they actually purchased those collars for us and just handed them to us, which is incredible. Oh, kudos you to know, you guys. <laughs> yep, not just the not just the funding, but the fact that they were willing to, to do the purchase um, itself. Yeah. Uh, the project and allowed us to, to move fairly quickly where if we were to, to have to do that internally, it takes more time. So we have these really sophisticated collars that, that allow us to, 
to track these animals, that's kind of a double-edged sword because as the management biologist for that herd, you hover over your mouse and, you know, they're on a 13-hour cycle and you know when the next points are coming up and, you know, you're just, you're just hoping that they, they continue to do what you would like them to do and don't take off and get into trouble. Right at the release, um, they kind of scattered. Yeah. You know, we let them go and, and they, they really just kind of blew all over the place. Not a lot of them out of the ag away from the mountains we did have a group of six that did that. That I was very concerned about. Um, went about six, seven miles out, found a rock feature away from the mountains and sat down. Oh Had another ewe that went almost 20 miles north and was leaving the mountain range um, right immediately after release. Both those, the initial group that went out um, onto the flats and that single ewe, both turned around and both returned to the release site and are are almost exactly where we'd hope they'd be. Um, but you, you, you know, normally, you know, in years past, you just open the trailer and let sheep go and hope for the best. You yeah. know? And we have this kind of double-edged sword where we have so much information about how they're moving um, that when you do see what's a normal, you know, exploratory movement, you get pretty nervous, you know, yeah. as a biologist, you're, you're kind of worried that you'll have to intervene. And, and uh, fortunately, um, they've, since the release, formed back into smaller bands of two, six, eight, ten sheep uh, <laughs> in the habitat that we hope they'd be in. And so far, every one of those sheep is on public land. So we're, we're really um, hopeful that, you know, over the winter when their habitat use is more generally restricted just on winter range and leading into the lambing season, which could be as early as April, wow. that they'll develop a, a local affinity to the to the habitat that we think is most appropriate for them and that over time they'll develop a standard, you know, elevational migratory pattern mm-hmm. and uh, and stay where stay where they're, you know, on public land and available for people to, to watch them and hopefully someday, maybe not too long, be able to hunt them. That's a question I want to get to because obviously my my uh, audience are heavily hunters and so, but we can get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. I, these collars, have you ever used anything? I, I, I've seen collars. I, I've handled these collars and um, been part of putting them on deer and, and things like that. Yep. Uh, have you ever used collars this sophisticated? I've used, yes, is the answer. So we Last, just an example, last winter, uh, we um, actually used the same helicopter service that we used for the bighorn sheep to capture and collar 50 um, cow elk in uh, kind of between the big belts and little belts. And we're actively monitoring those animals to, for a different reason. We're, we're looking at looking at availability of those elk during hunting season and ways we can more effectively manage harvest. And back in the day, I deployed earlier versions of these GPS collars on links and mountain lions and, and others. And the technology just keeps improving. So the ability to have a geofence, the ability to, to, um, to track in real time through the Iridium system. Um, and importantly, the, the longevity of the collars, these collars that we deployed, even with all that capability, um, they're designed to last more. I'm guaranteed that they will last at least five years. 
where historic, yeah, where where historically, even with just standard VHF beep, beeping collars, you would be lucky to get anywhere near that longevity. So it's just really exciting. Our, this first cohort will be able to track perfectly. We hope to have, you know, um, healthy lamb production native to the little belts. Um, this spring, of course, those animals will not be collared, but they'll still be associated for at least the first year with their collared ewes. So in, in the early stages of this project, we'll, we'll really be able to keep our keep our eyes and, and fingers on, on this herd as it establishes. And I'd argue this first few years is the most important period oh, yeah. to have that information. Yeah, definitely. Well, like you said, it's kind of a double-edged sword because... Like you said before, you open up the gates and ignorance is bliss at that point. You yeah, exactly that's and... a better way to put it. Yep, <laughs> yeah. yep, yep. You assume that they're they're doing good and you know, you spot check them, I guess, every once in a while, fly them and see where yeah. they're at. But uh, but then again, I, I do I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of a techie and I think it'd be fun to be able to just track and see where they're at and what they're doing. And like you said, have that fence set up that if they go past that, you can you get an alert. And I, I I don't know. I think that's pretty cool. So it's amazing what technology, even you know, in all aspects. But to to see technology coming into to this realm, it's amazing. I love seeing it. Well, and it, it helps us. It helps us in a number of ways. I mean, the just the data that we collect, we'll we'll be able, you know, those habitat models that I mentioned earlier. I'll eventually be able to use the the data. We'll we'll end up with millions of point locations that are highly accurate. We'll be able to use that information to further refine the, the population models to make them even more powerful and applicable in habitats like central Montana, um, you know, where we use state, statewide data to build them originally. And there's a fair diversity when you look between Northwest Montana and, and the breaks, you know, in, in habitat type, it's pretty different. So we'll be able to use that local data to, to build and refine and improve our understanding of bighorn sheep habitat use in, in areas like this. Um, yeah, the, you know, and the, the technology also, you know, just the fact that we could track these so closely set some folks' minds at ease that, that we weren't just walking away. And that when we had an animal that was getting a little too close to, for comfort um, to people or domestic livestock, that we could potentially respond to that you know, go dart it and move it back or do whatever we had to do. You know, the, the, just the fact that we were, we were able to, to keep tabs on these animals helped build local support. Um, so, you know, it, it has a lot of benefits, even though it has yeah. a lot of cost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you brought up the point that the, the wild sheep foundation, the, the Montana chapter was able to help with purchasing those and getting those to you guys, which is, is so cool and I, I did want to take a minute and maybe if you want to mind kind of recognizing some of the people that were involved in, in this project because I mean at the end of the day these things can't happen without those those people's support not, not even just funding but there's the support the manpower the you know the things that it takes to, to do a project like this so would you mind sharing with us like who who was involved out I mean along with the Wild Sheep Foundation Yep. The, 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 so the Wild Sheep Foundation has a national organization, so that's kind of known as the Wild Sheep Foundation. They uh, um, have chapters all over uh, the U.S. and Canada. Um, they were the primary 
uh, funding partner as well as having a lot of their staff come out and actually help us in the field and uh, testify for the project in front of the commission, help help in a number of ways. They've just been a fantastic partner on this and a lot of other projects. The state chapter is very active. Um, you know, I, I'm biased, but I believe that Montana has the, the most important, you know, bighorn sheep resource in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, the Montana chapter is a big part of, of that advocacy, and, and they've got a very active membership. They they contributed a significant amount of money and, and time and personnel to it. Uh, Great Falls chapter of Safari, Safari Club International uh, contributed. Um, Montana Bow Hunters Association contributed, both time and money. Uh, Kinetrek, the, the boot and apparel company, uh, helped, as did uh, the outdoor hunting apparel company, Kuyu, who have supported other bighorn sheep restoration projects um, in other other areas and in other states. So it's a really pretty diverse, you know, group of organizations that came together. And like I said, we complemented those monies with uh, proceeds from that sheep auction fund. And that's, that's money internal to FWP, but, but earmarked specifically for this kind of work. That's that's amazing, and shout out to the to everybody that was involved in this. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Great, great, great people, and uh, you know, they, a lot of a lot of these folks have just been hungry for us to to find an opportunity like this. Yeah. You know, they've been waiting, you know, I think seventeen or I guess now eighteen years for us to to you know propose and follow through with a project like this, and we're hoping that you know this is going to teach us quite a bit and as we look toward Eastern Montana and some other areas around the state that we can continue to do this kind of work. Well, that's actually kind of my next question I kind of wanted to get into was, you know, you're going to learn, like you said, you're going to learn so much from these, but those callers that you have, I mean, you're just going to, I think the knowledge that's going to come out of this is going to benefit, well, and honestly, not even just Montana. I think anybody that's involved with Bighorn Sheep, this is probably going to benefit everybody. But, um, you know, like with that, information that you receive do you guys have plans to to do more of this in the future yeah i mean like i said our our strategy and you know we as an agency speak in terms of management plans and strategies i mean that's our direction but our strategy has long directed the department to look for and identify more restoration opportunities like this you know a lot of it comes down to risk tolerance and we've been fairly risk averse we experienced um, some significant and widespread all-age die-off events in the early 2010s in western Montana um, along the Rocky Mountain Front, uh, you know, in the Elkhorn Mountains. And nobody likes to see that. It's horrible. Um, I personally had to respond to a number of those, and it just, just breaks your heart. Uh, and so... You know, you you have that in the back of your mind. I think we do as managers uh, wanting to ensure that, you know, a new herd is put at least a a risk as possible. I'm kind of of the opinion that you can, you can, you know, be too risk intolerant and be paralyzed by that. You know, there are domestic sheep surrounding Little Belt Mountains. Not close, but they're they're around. And there's a non-zero chance that we could see commingling, and there's a non-zero chance that whether from that exposure or because the sheep already carry 
um, a lot of these pathogens, you know, with them when they came, that we could see a disease event in the little pelts. But our argument was that it's an island range, that the sheep would not be naturally connected to other established bighorn sheep herds, and that the um, the nearest other herd in the Big Belt Mountains, just adjacent to the little belts, also were founded by the same sheep that we used as a source for these and would theoretically have the same disease history or the pathogen history. So we, we think the risk to other sheep in the state is low, um, you know, even if we had a, a disease event happen in the little belts, we don't expect that to happen. But if it did, we're not necessarily putting other established herds at risk. Yeah. And at some point, if you want to, you know, uh, Brian Solon, he's kind of the head of the Montana Wild Sheep Foundation, is fond of saying, you know, we've done all the easy ones, you know, <laughs> all the natural, you know, slam dunk sort of reintroduction sites have been have been tried. And we need to, you know, look beyond those. And uh, this project represents that, in my view, represents that first step oh, toward great. going, you know, to different areas, areas that might have not been considered 15 years ago. If you don't mind me asking, Jay, and you'll have to kind of forgive my ignorance on this, I kind of want to I'd actually like to get in the weeds a little bit on this. Why are sheep so susceptible to these diseases? I, you know, as I've, I, I know, I should say, I know most big game animals and animals, I guess, in general, are susceptible to several diseases. But it's, it does seem like sheep are, are very highly susceptible to a lot of these diseases. What, what's the reason in that? Well, I can't. I could speculate, and I don't want to do that. The okay. disease ecology for bighorn sheep is its own, you know, its own specialty. And there's people that study it their whole lives that probably couldn't give you a satisfactory answer to that. There, there's a behavioral piece of it. You know, the the transmissibility is nose to nose with a lot of these respiratory pathogens, and that's that's sheep. You know, mm. that's what they do. Yeah, they're always putting their faces uh, against each other. <laughs> yep, yep. And a lot of the pathogens that that have caused that we've, we've seen cause disease, you know, we talk about a hundred years is a long time, but in the evolution of a species or even the evolution of resistance to novel diseases, I guess you could make a parallel to 2020. Um, you know, that's not very long. And so they haven't necessarily developed that natural defense or immunity against some of these respiratory pathogens or the precursors like MOV that, cause pathogens that are naturally, you know, naturally occur in the respiratory tract to, to descend into the lungs and cause disease. So I, I, again, I couldn't, I couldn't say why sheep in particular, but sheep in particular are susceptible to these respiratory pathogens. It just is what it is. And yeah. we need to, to manage for that and account for that and accept that well, to the extent that we need to, to, to manage them. Yeah. I appreciate there's people like you that <laughs> have the knowledge to do that because again you got to kind of forgive my ignorance on that because I yeah I've never even thought about that but trying to manage for I'm sure managing for those diseases especially in sheep is is extremely hard but again like I said in other animals as well I know you you're involved with other animals as well and so I I know that's a big task of of your guys's and 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 big part of your uh, your job so I've always just wondered that because I've talked to a lot of people about sheep and. Um, a lot of people have talked about how they're always susceptible to these respiratory diseases and something you always got to be looking well, out and for. Well, they're not, they're, and that's part of, I'd, I'd say they're not always susceptible, which is what's really interesting. The, 
the the sorcerer that we're using in this case is a good um, case study in that. And some folks like Professor Bob Garrett out of MSU down in Bozeman have done a lot of work and have made the argument that there are factors other than simply exposure to the pathogens that lead to the disease that, you know, a herd like the Brakes herd that has that disease exposure history. We can see it in the serology. We can detect those uh, pathogens um, genetically in the in the sheep. They've, they've been exposed, but they've not presented with that oh. respiratory disease. And so you start to you start to wonder, well, are there other precipitating factors? I'm sure there are. There has to be. That yeah. also need to be present in order for that disease to express itself once it's once it's present. You know, things like, you know, habitat quality, you know, um, other stressors that you can imagine being on the landscape that might might tip them over the edge, mm-hmm. you know, to cause these these endemic pathogens to, to present as a fatal disease. That's why I'm really fascinated with the with the source that we've got. We've got one clean, quote unquote, clean herd in the state, which we're also gonna we're gonna we're gonna use as a source for another augmentation this winter on Wild Horse Island in the middle of Flathead Lake. I mean, that's literally a several thousand acre island in the middle of the largest freshwater lake <laughs> in Western North America, and you know that's this perfect uh, moat around that herd's habitat as you could engineer and so those sheep don't have that disease history um, but other than those sheep there really aren't other sources that that haven't at least been exposed and um, you know we'll just have to see whether you know a change in habitat or, or other conditions triggers what is latent in this herd to express itself or not mm-hmm. but uh, again we we thought it was well worth the risk and trying to establish this herd and and, you know if if it does happen that's really unfortunate but we'd also benefit from that lesson too yeah it's definitely worth the risk man this is fascinating this is absolutely i'm kind of a nerd when it comes to this stuff so this is really interesting to me but i agree with you well worth the risk um for this opportunity to expand you know the herds the that just that population in montana like you you said you are biased to, towards Montana, but uh, even as an outsider looking in, um, I mean, yeah, Montana is, is kind of that pinnacle. It's where you, everybody, every Western hunter, well, every hunter would love to go hunt bighorn sheep. So um, it's awesome that you guys are, are doing this and, and just expanding those opportunities. And, and with that, I guess let's go back to your, you know, we kind of talked about or touched on it earlier. You know, what's the plan with these bighorns, and, and is there going to be that opportunity in the future to be able to hunt them at some point on the uh, up there yeah but i've already got the first tag uh, <laughs> set aside for myself uh, did i get number um, two the, the, <laughs> yeah the, 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 absolutely <laughs> that would be the measure of success yeah. um, i hope that in my career um i'll be able to to see that first ram license offered I mean, that would be a tremendous success. So we started, we've got currently have 49 um, bighorn in this, this herd. Um, we'd expect, you know, a high recruitment level. You know, I don't know what predation is going to be like. I don't know what lamb survival is going to be like. We're going to work on that this summer. But typically, you know, you'd see 30, 32 lambs per 100 ewes 
you know, recruited as yearlings into the population the following year. You know, with 49, probably 44 of those are pregnant, so maybe 10 to 12 lambs, you know, 60-40 ratio used to rams, would be recruited in 2022. And, uh, you know, that would bring the overall number of ewes up by that six or seven, and they breed, and it slowly progresses. Our goal is to have that herd reach roughly 125 animals. Um, at that point, they're genetically and biologically self-sustaining. We've, we've seen that in other places, that that's kind of a, a sweet spot. Uh, when we did our analysis of the little belts, just based on habitat carrying capacity, not not on the social stuff, but on the habitat carrying capacity, it told us that we have the potential, at least, to support as many as 600 sheep in the little belts. Um, I don't think we'll ever get to that point because of some of these are mitigating factors, but mm-hmm. we've got lots of good habitat there. And if we can grow the herd to 100, 125 animals, um, there's going to be a harvestable surplus of, of rams available for hunters. Um, I worked with a herd closer to Missoula, Montana, um, that was introduced in the um, back in the 80s. And by the late 90s and early 2000s, it was producing Boone and Crockett class rams. I mean, it can happen fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's like compound interest. The more, as the sheep herd grows, the, the more of those lambs survive and are recruited into the population. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm hopeful that if things go well, we'll, we'll be able to offer that opportunity, you know, in the midterm. Mm-hmm. I would imagine every hunter that's listening to this podcast just uh, got a smile on their face because <laughs> any more opportunity, especially in a state like Montana, to uh, yep. to hunt bighorns, uh, you can't help but smile. And, and you know, and you're right on the, the habitat, too. There, I've never been to the Little Belts, but you were some of the pictures that you were sending to me, I mean, even just looking at the picture, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's bighorn right there. You know, like that's, yeah. that's perfect habitat yeah. for bighorn. Yeah. It could use some fire. It could use some work like the forest service is currently doing, you know, with mm-hmm. some thinning and, you know, it's way more forested now than it was historically. And that's true, you know, in a lot of places, but that's, that's something, you know, we can work on over time. And yeah. uh, again, with, with partners and with agency, cooperation i think we can improve some of that habitat uh, even above what, what it is now and what it is now is apparently um sufficient and, you know by our models and the sheep are telling us the same thing so i'm, I'm real hopeful that that uh it's got that kind of um that kind of potential it's going to support a self-sustaining and again a humble herd yeah. um over the long term we certainly know we've got the genetic potential i mean like i said the 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 class of sheep you know if you draw that once in a lifetime governor's tag if you purchase that tag you're going to the missouri breaks that's where you're going to hunt yeah um and so i'm I'm hoping that that genetic potential and the overall herd health carries forward into this herd's long-term um success that's, it is truly amazing. I'll have to tell my wife to break open her wallet and buy that tag or something. I'm just kidding. That's, yeah, that's yeah, real money yeah. for that tag. It is. It oh, is, my goodness. It is, but, it's so yeah. cool, that, though, that, that the, there are those opportunities and that you guys are doing things like this just to create. You know, we're, we're, we're humble hunters, and we just love more and more opportunities and, you know, happy to help in any way that we possibly can. But we love it when, 
stuff like this goes on because a lot of you know this kind of stuff is out of our hands both financially and just the manpower of it and so when people come together like this and including you and your team um, it, it really is inspiring and um, just gives us a lot more opportunity and a lot more hope for the future as, as hunters so so pretty cool um, Jay was there anything that we we didn't touch on about the release or about the capture or anything like that about the whole just introduction process that you wanted to touch on um, not really. Uh, I I just offer to listeners and and um, and folks that that visit your site that if anybody has any specific questions or interest in the project, um, they can get a hold of me directly, and I'll I'll share everything we know. I'm putting out maybe a quarterly project update that I'll email email out to folks that are interested if they want to want to track progress and and see how things are going. Um, we're uh, we're more than happy to share anything that we can about how it's uh how it's come together and, and where it's going what's the best way to get in contact with you uh just either email me or give me a call um my uh contact information's right on the fwp website okay perfect awesome i appreciate you being willing to do that because i'm sure there will be a lot of questions like i said i've, I've had podcasts similar to this and people come to me with questions and I kind of have to point them back in the direction of the people that know what they're talking about. So um, I appreciate you giving that information and, and I also encourage anybody, you know, even if you're not from Montana, maybe you're not a bighorn sheep hunter, but I mean, these projects are really cool um, and really interesting. And, and so if you do have questions or you just want to follow up with the status of what's going on with this introduction, um, I, I encourage you to get on that and get those, those updates because um, it, it's super interesting. It's just a really cool, cool opportunity cool uh, situation so well jay I, I appreciate you taking some time with me today um to talk about this i appreciate what you guys are doing there um, i know i'll speak for all hunters alike that we just we appreciate what all you wildlife biologists and, and managers do to to keep our love and our passion alive i know um it's your guys's jobs but you know, the, what what you guys do for us is, is very appreciated. And if there's any way that we can help, we'd be more than happy to help in any way that we possibly can. Well, I sure appreciate it. And thanks again for your, your interest in uh, in this project. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about uh, catching up maybe uh, maybe next year sometime or something or maybe even a little bit before and, and kind of get an update on how the herd's doing? Absolutely. We'll know a lot more after we get through uh, a full year so to see how land production goes uh -huh. and how when summer green up happens um how these sheep explore their new uh their new area um, yeah. yeah we'll know a lot more in a year than we know now and i'm, I'm really hopeful that that things will continue to progress as they have let's let's plan on that then i'll I'm, i'll probably talk to you between now and then anyways but um if not let's ensure that we uh we get in contact and yeah, after they've been there for a year and get an update on how the herd's doing, that'd be that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yep, be be sure and do that. Okay, definitely will. All right, Jay, well, I'll let you back to your day. I appreciate again, appreciate your time, appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, let me know if I can help in any way. And, and for those listening, again, if you guys have any questions, reach out to Jay. You can reach out to myself if um, if you have any questions that I can answer. I'd be happy to. I'll probably point you in Jay's way because he's he's he knows what he's talking about and I don't. So, Jay, I'll let you go and uh, appreciate your time, Ben. Hey, thanks for calling. All right, talk to you later. 
Alright guys, thanks again for listening to the podcast. Appreciate all your support for eHunter, not only the podcast, but also the website. If you haven't checked out the website lately, remember to go to eHunter.com. That's E-H-U-N-T-R.com. We're posting new articles pretty much daily about hunting news, how-tos, reviews, um, all things hunting. So, appreciate you guys. 